We're back in John today. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 14. Uh, if you're new, we've been going through the Gospel of John for several months now, and uh, we happen upon John 14. We're going to actually finish the chapter today. Uh, a, a Gospel is a spiritual biography of the life of Jesus, and John's is unique in that um, he's writing to convince us, to 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 help us come to a, a point of belief in Jesus, but more in that, to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to encourage us that we are, that that um, life is available to, to have for ourselves uh, in his name. And so uh, as we finish out chapter 14, we're actually going to um, be looking at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. However, uh, just for the, the sake of time, we're going to only read verses 15 through 27 together. Here we go. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the. I'm sorry, keep reading whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day. You will know that I am in the father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to be assembled as your church. under the authority of your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, very simply that you would open our eyes and give us ears to hear all that you would have for us through this passage of scripture as you uh, as you remind us of, of your unity, your oneness with the Father and all that, that means. But more importantly, as you uh, as you show us the importance of you leaving this world to be with the Father and sending your spirit, we pray that uh, that we would be changed under the hearing of your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. So chapter, all of chapter 14 is capturing this emotionally charged moment. Jesus has just told his disciples that he's departing, departing the world that he's been a part of for some 30 years, and he's going back to the Father. And that really has, uh, I mean, that's put the, the disciples, these men that have been with him for three years, living with him, talking with him, sharing life with him, um, learning all that he, you know, who he is and what he had come to do. And they're shocked. 
more than just shock, they're a little trouble. I mean, uh, perhaps you've experienced this. Someone that's really close to you, a family member, a spouse, um, someone that you love and, and trust and just in, enjoy spending time with, that all of a sudden they're telling you that they're leaving your immediate presence. It may be because of an illness. It may be because of a, a life situation. It may even be, be uh, because of a job. I recall, you know, between 2003 and 2006, I deployed three times in those in those four or so years. And, and every time, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a pleasant it wasn't necessarily pleasant news for my wife and you know our little kids at the time. Uh, each of those times that, that I left, because you you get this feeling. I mean, what what's going to happen? What's what's going to transpire in the time that you're gone? I mean, I'm, I'm, I, am I going to feel lonely or something going to happen to the the person that's perhaps leaving? You get you have all of those feelings that are that are going on in you, and you're wondering uh, also, you know, just what's going to happen next. And so that's kind of where the disciples find themselves as Jesus breaks this news to them that he's leaving, going back to the Father. They they sort of understand that, but in a sense, they still need more information. And you'll see them asking questions of Jesus in that regard in the text. And so in this chapter, in all of chapter 14, Jesus is seeking to to comfort their troubled hearts. The, the same way you would want to be comforted if someone that you know and love and have spent a lot of time with is going to not be around you uh, anymore. And so really the the way that Jesus lays out uh, that John captures what, what Jesus words are is he's laying out five reasons that he's departing this world and going back to the father. And so that'll be sort of the way that we unpack uh, our text today. And the first um, the first reason that Jesus gives for why he was leaving uh, the disciples and going back to the father. We actually looked at that last week. And so by way of review, we won't spend a lot of time here. Jesus says uh, the reason why he's leaving is to prepare a place for them. He's going to prepare a a place not of this world for uh, those who he's called to himself. Um, And what we looked at last week was uh, this phrase that Jesus repeatedly uh, talks about. He says, I'm going to prepare a place. And he says that a couple of times. The place he's talking about is, is heaven. Jesus speaks of heaven as a real place for for real people. It's not just an ethereal state of mind, something, some figment of our imagination. It's a place that he's going to go to. And it's a place that he's inviting those who have trusted in him to eventually go to. Um, Jesus paints a picture of heaven as as a loving home uh, that the father calls his house. Uh, He says it's a place that has Many, many rooms. Uh, if you are familiar with the King James Version, most of us learned this verse. Uh, it has many mansions. We, uh, we had fun with this, with this phrase in our community group last week. And uh, I learned that some, some of the folks in our community group have some pretty grand um, ideas of what heaven is going to look like. And I think the, the imagery that Jesus gives us of, of heaven is that it's supposed to be glorious. Why is it going to be glorious? Because Jesus himself and God the Father are there ruling and reigning over all of all of their creation into the eternity. But this 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 idea of many rooms or mansions in the Greek really is a, a combination of the, the thought that it's abiding or dwelling places. A couple things there. Firstly, all the people that God has called to himself, there's room for all of us there. I think of it like, you know, a, a heavenly uh, holiday in express. There's going to be room for all of us. And there's going to be a free 
breakfast in the morning when you wake up, every morning in, uh, in perpetuity. More than that, Jesus is speaking of the, the permanency of our heavenly home. We're not going to have to pack up and move and pack up and move. It's going to be room for us, for all those people God is calling to himself. But more than that, it's our eternal home. Um, heaven is, uh, is a prepared place for a prepared people. In a sense, Jesus is the master carpenter, and he is building this, this um, a place that we can't even imagine in our minds. And as he's building it, he's also building us so that we're ready for it when we get there. And that's an important thought. Because if you're here on this earth right now, that means you're, you're not ready for heaven. Jesus is still doing things in you to prepare you for uh, the ultimate reality of eternity. And so although Jesus is about to leave, he's going to return. The Bible tells us um, this is outside of the, this particular chapter. He's going to return and receive all those who he's called to himself back to himself. And so the, the point of application for for this part of the text really is this simple question. How, how do I get to heaven? How do I get to the Father's house so that there's a room there for me? And Jesus tells us uh, in the text, he tells us in verse six, he says that I'm the only way you can get there. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to this place that the Father dwells and that there's room for you unless you come through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. All right, so that's the first reason why he's leaving. The second reason is uh, he wants to reveal the Father to them. Jesus is leaving to, to go to the Father because he wants to reveal the Father to them. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We've seen throughout John's gospel, Jesus affirms his oneness with the Father. Oneness in its, I guess its, its base sense means unity, that they are together in their thought. Um, beyond that, because Jesus is divine, it has this idea they're of the, the same essence, different persons, but of the same essence. Jesus says to know him is to know God the Father. To hear Jesus' voice is to, in reality, hear the very words of God. And in these disciples' case, those who have I mean, walked and talked with Jesus for years to see Jesus in the flesh is for them to have seen God himself. That's, that's really what he's saying to these disciples. Now, once again, uh, you know, there's always John helps us out because he always provides a little drama in his recollection of, of Jesus and his interaction with the disciples. And once again, we see that one of the disciples responds with a little bit of spontaneity, but also with uh, some perplexity. Only this time it's not Peter. And it's not Thomas. It happens to be Philip. Verse eight. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. Um, I like to think that Philip is answering like this. Jesus, we've seen some fantastic things. You've walked on water. You've turned water into wine. You have fed thousands of people. Uh, our ancestors in the Old Testament would have given their left arm just to see some of the miracles that we've seen. The angels want to peer down and look on all the things that you've done. And we're the ones that get to get to experience this. But I, I just got to ask you one more thing. And this is going to be a big one. I need you to do just one more miracle. Can you peel back the veil and just let us see the face of God? I won't ask you anything else 
but that. That's really what Peter was at, uh, Philip was asking. And understandably, Jesus responds with a little bit of, of patient annoyance. Look at verse nine. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the, but the father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the father and the father's in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip is an interesting character. If we would trace back just the uh, the few words that we hear attributed to Philip or the interaction that Jesus has with Philip. Philip always wants to see stuff. Philip is the one that when Jesus was gathering up the disciples, he says, I think to Nathaniel, um, can there, uh, Nathaniel says, can there be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And every time we see Philip, there's this idea of he wants to actually see the thing that's put in front of him. And so once again, Philip wants Jesus. I mean, show me. You got to show me. And then I'll be, I got trust. I got faith. I believe you, Jesus. Show me. Show me a little bit. And Jesus is, is telling him, in a sense, Jesus is rehashing everything that he's already spoken to the disciples about, about the oneness, his oneness with, with God the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, come on. To see me really is to, to, to see the face of God. You don't need to see the face of God. You've already seen it. I've been with you for three years. Not only that, the Father and I are one. And because we dwell so closely together, when you're, when you're sensing me, you're sensing everything that you would get and see from God the Father. My character is his character. Here's the implication of, of Jesus uh, sort of, uh, you know, patient, I call it patient annoyance um, is everything from his teaching to his miracles demonstrates who he is. And he's basically saying to Philip and to the disciples that are listening, I mean, you should have got this by now. Verse 11. Uh, let's look at that one more time. He says, believe me that I'm in the father and the father's in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is meant to be a challenge to the disciples. Uh, and, and obviously, by extension, it's kind of a challenge to us. He's, he's not saying simply, just trust me as in have blind faith. He's saying, believe that what I'm saying is true. He says, think about all the miracles that I've done. I mean, I've, I've walked on water. I've taken a little bit of bread and multiplied it for thousands of people. And you actually saw me do that. And then he says, I raised somebody from the dead. It's like if, if my words don't penetrate you, at least, at least see that the, the, the things that I've done ring loudly, that the saving aspects of the kingdom of God are, are in your midst. They're in your midst in and through me. So uh, that's the second reason. The third reason is simply this, uh, that we might do greater works. Verse 12, that we might do greater works. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Um, anybody ever seen or been offered a deal that just seems like it's too good to be true? One of those ads for TV kind of um, kind of a deal that guy's talking real fast. They got a small letter writing at the bottom of it. Um, 
Here's what I've learned in my few years of life. Um, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And so if something appears to be too good to be true, it is. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, that car on Craigslist for $5,000 under Kelly Blue Book value is really a clunker. That pill that that you see the advertisement say that if you take this pill, you'll lose 30 pounds with no effort at all is actually a lie. And you might even gain weight if you take that pill. But definitely there's no pill you can take that's going to make you lose weight. You need to do the work. Um, But this is what Jesus is offering. He says there is a promise that. That a promise that has been made, actually promises that have been made, that's too good to be true, but they're actually legit. But here's the deal. They're all in the Bible. And so you got to you got to read the Bible and you got to believe in what the Bible is presenting you to get the truth of that. This verse is is one of those. Um, This is this is a verse you've heard. You've heard it from TV preachers. You've seen it written in books. You you've seen you've come across this particular verse a lot. And. There's a lot of discussion about what this verse really means. Uh, to, as I'm studying the Gospel of John, I look at about eight different commentaries. None of them say the same thing in regards to what this, this verse says. Um, but some of the things, some of their thoughts have merit. There's some that suggest uh, that this verse is a reference to Jesus' ethics, that, uh, that as Jesus provides for us a higher ethic, that that's the greater thing that he that he empowers us to do. Examples would be as as recent as John 13. Jesus takes his clothes off. He puts a towel around his waist. He fills a basin filled with water and he gets down and he washes the disciples nasty, stinky, mucky, mucky feet. And then later in that same chapter, he says, as I've washed your feet, you should wash other people's feet. There's some merit to that. Um, later in John chapter 13, uh, Jesus gives the disciples a command. He says, a new commandment I've given to you. This is verse 34, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These, uh, this higher ethic, uh, Jesus not only he's our exemplar, he sets a, an excellent model for us to do these things. And he tells us to do it. And we'll learn here in a couple minutes. He also empowers us to do that. And so this these these things, Jesus ethic actually has merit in terms of the greater things that he's uh, telling us that we will be able to do. But there's also those that that actually look at this verse and they say, well, I mean, he's talking about miracles. I mean, Jesus is saying there's some that would say Jesus is is telling us that there's greater things that we will do. And it's and it's in regards to the miracles that he's done. Now, think about that. Jesus has done some pretty outstanding miracles. He's walked on water. Y'all ever seen anybody walk on water? Mm-mm. Um, he's taken a little bit of food and multiplied it. He's uh, he's healed people. He has, ra- uh, you know, raised a man from the dead. And that man got up, walked, talked, ate food. Um, I think if we're honest, and this, this is just my thinking, uh, it's kind of hard to fathom anybody doing anything greater than Jesus. Right. I mean, isn't it hard to think about that? At least that's how I see it. Um, so what could he mean? We could get bogged down in the details. Uh, so I'm going to fast forward and just actually give you what I think is going on here. Uh, I think that 
the suggestion of greater works can be understood only in light of the gospel. The, the gospel being the period after Jesus' resurrection where the, the good news of Jesus uh, going to the cross in my place, dying for the forgiveness of my sins and offering that to me and those who would trust him, that, that period of time, that, that's what he's suggesting to us that will do greater works. The only works of Jesus that could ever be greater then the miracles we see him perform are the works that lead to the salvation of souls. Think about when you get to the, the book of Acts. Uh, the, act, the book of Acts deals with the growth of the early church and the acts of the apostles. In other words, the, the things that they're doing. And um, that book shows the, the apostles doing a lot of miracles. We see some, some, some pretty amazing things that they're doing in regards to uh, you know, healing and, and uh, miraculous stuff. But the emphasis in the book of Acts is not necessarily on the healing that the apostles do. More importantly, the emphasis on, is on the preaching of the gospel and the conversions of, of multitudes of people in Jesus. And so if we trace out the, the movement of the gospel just with Jesus' life, uh, right here, Jesus has about 11 intimate friends and the Bible doesn't tell us, but we can count their family members. And so those really are the only people at this point following Jesus closely, loving him and, and intending to, to, to give their life for him. Um, after Jesus dies and re- actually we should back up. Remember, I mean, in a few chapters, Jesus is going to get arrested. And most of these most of these disciples, except for Peter, are going to scatter. I mean, and then Peter's going to deny him. So. Even we can't even really count them. But after Jesus resurrects from the dead, first Corinthians 15 tells us he appears to 500 people and he sort of rallies them. And then we get to Acts chapter one and two. And we see that Jesus commissions 120 people in the upper room. And then something I mean, miraculous happens. The Holy Spirit falls on Pentecost. Peter preaches this great sermon. And the most important act in the church, you know, to date happens right there in their midst. 3,000 people come to faith uh, in that one day at the preaching of the word. The work of the gospel is the greater work that Jesus promised. And I think what, what he does in this passage is he, he proves it. He gives us three reasons in regards to, to how this comes about, how the greater works comes about. And the first thing he says is, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me would, would do greater works. And this really means that um, it's a spiritual work. And it's meant that every Christian, every person that receives regeneration by the Holy Spirit is to enter into that work and participate in in proclamation of the gospel. The second thing he says is that the greater works don't come about unless he goes to the father. And this this particularly means that because Jesus is going to the father, he's going to assist us in 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 causing the greater works to, to come about. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that scripture tells us that Jesus goes to heaven to, to sit at the Father's right hand. And the, the connotation of sitting is, is it's not that he's lazy or he's doing nothing. It's, it's the thought that his work is complete. 
It's finished. He's done all that he needs to do. Jesus is sitting in heaven with the Father. He's ruling. He's reigning. Uh, Matthew 28 says he has all authority. He gives that authority, gifts that authority to us, and he helps us to perform greater works by mediating for us, mediating for us to God the Father, but also empowering us uh, with intercessory prayers on our behalf. Thirdly, Jesus says greater works happen as we pray. Verse 13. Whatever whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Uh, This informs us that this informs us of the privilege of prayer. And prayer is is it's just talking to God. It's it's communicating with God. Prayer for us today is in faith. Being able to speak with Jesus just as these disciples spoke with Jesus in their day. I mean, that really is how we should view prayer, especially as Jesus was preparing to go to heaven, uh, to leave earth and go to heaven. Prayer would remove the, the sense of distance and bring these disciples into his very presence at any time. And honestly, it does that same thing for us today. And I would offer to you prayer was essential to the greater works that Jesus spoke about in verse 12. Now, here's the interesting thing. This I mean, we got to look at the words here. The promise of 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 this verse of these verses goes much further than just offering Christians the privilege of of prayer. Jesus seems to be saying more than we can just commune with the father. It seems to be that he's saying whatever we ask in his name, God is going to do. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of church people who conclude that um, this promise is absolute. Um, they think that a Christian can ask for whatever they want, tack on at the end in Jesus name. Amen. And poof, God is going to do that. I mean, there's some. I mean, there's a scripture say that. Um, here's a story. Y'all, any of y'all baseball fans? Like one or two. That's like the. I mean, this is the only time that I even pay attention to baseball. So um, this is a St. Louis Cardinals story. So there's a uh, uh, famous baseball player. His name is uh, inconsequential. It doesn't really matter for the story. But this guy was. I mean, he was a hot pitcher. He was doing well. He was at the top, and he was bringing his team to the top with him, uh, playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, he was an older player, and he'd have some some great years underneath. Uh, him, uh, but he had a, a couple years that he went into a slump. His, his pitching wasn't being effective, and the team wasn't getting out of him all they wanted to get out of him. And so the rumor was they were going to make him retire. Um, but instead of retiring, he asked them, could he go to the minor leagues? And so they pushed him back down to the minor leagues, and he was a Christian. And so he and his wife just prayed that God would do something. Um, do something, Lord, that would help me Finish my career right. I don't want to get stuck down here in the minor leagues. I want to, you know, I want to finish on the top, a little bit of famous, so it will take me into into retirement. And so he prayed, and uh, and then uh, while he's playing for the minor leagues, he actually uh, developed a, a way to throw a two finger fastball and became effective at it. Now, I don't know if you know about. It. I, I don't know. I don't know this, but I'm told that for a pitcher to uh, perfect a, a pitch. It takes about a year for him to do that or more. But amazingly, this veteran, this seasoned pitcher was able to um, perfect a two finger fast pitch pitch um, 
in a month's time. And so, I mean, he was throwing strike, I mean, strikes left and right. And they, they pulled him back up to the, the major leagues, put him back on the, the Cardinals team roster. And uh, he was able to finish his, his, his career out, I mean, on the top. Brought his team up to the top. They got to, they actually went, uh, ended up winning the division. And, uh, and so it sounds like this guy's prayer, this simple prayer that he prayed, Lord, help me to get back on top and finish rightly, um, it happened. And so, I mean, is it is it supposed to happen like that? Are we as Christians, are we supposed to be able to pray something as simple as that? Lord, help me to be able to do this. And and it comes and it comes true. I would offer it's not that simple. Y'all ever tried to I mean, y'all ever pray for something that didn't come. I mean, God didn't answer your prayer. I mean, at least not how you thought, how you asked him to. Uh, praying in Jesus name means praying on the basis of uh, of his claims to be God. Praying in Jesus name uh, is a prayer that's consistent with the nature and purpose of our Savior. It's prayer that coincides with the known will of God, his character, his purposes, his attitude. Praying in Jesus name is a prayer. The text tells us by which the uh, the father is glorified in the son. That means that we should never expect selfish, petty, worldly, foolish, self-glorifying, self-pitying. I've given you enough adjectives yet. Here's the truth. This guy's prayer um, may have been in the will of God for him. Um, But it doesn't mean that every prayer that we pray that has our own selfish motives in it, even if it, you know, even if somehow it might sound good that God is going to feel obligated to uh, to answer to get answered. So the fourth reason that Jesus says he is leaving this earth and going back to the Father is to send the Holy Spirit. And this really is the focal point of our text today because everything else in the text sort of hinges on this. This section of scripture is unique also because starting from this point uh, around verse 15 in chapter 14 and going all the way through uh, John chapter 17, we have Jesus giving us a discourse. Uh, in other words, uh, he gives us uh, more teaching about the Holy Spirit than any other section of Scripture uh, put together. Um, here we encounter um, the ministry of, of God, the Holy Spirit. And so let's ask ourselves, who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? Verse 16. Actually, uh, I'm gonna, it's not going to be on your screen. I'm going to start at verse 15 to give us some steam. And then I'm going to read verse 16 and 17. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 16. And I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the uh, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Many of us know. Uh, about God, pretty much every time we say the word God, most of us are talking about God the Father. Uh, we know about Jesus, and if we don't know about Jesus, we've heard about we've heard about Jesus enough to know God the Father and and Jesus, first person of the Trinity, second person of the Trinity. But you know, a lot of times we just we don't know a lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, we don't think a lot about the Holy Spirit, and so. Let's ask ourselves who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, the first thing to know is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. Um, person simply means person like we are human persons. Persons We can communicate. We have intellect. We have 
uh, language. Uh, we can think. We have emotion. The, the Holy Spirit obviously is uh, a person like that, although he's not a human. The Holy Spirit's personhood can be seen throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. Um, I'm not going to uh, recite all of these, but I'll have a, here's some scripture verses for you to, to write down. The New Testament says that the Holy Spirit decides, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each, each one individually as he wills. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Romans 8, 26 says the Holy Spirit acts. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. That's him taking an action in regards to us. 1 Timothy 4.1 says the Holy Spirit speaks. The words are, now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, on and on. And lastly, Ephesians 4.30 says the Holy Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit feels. Uh, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has emotions. He is a person. Uh, we're reading out of the ESV, and the ESV um, uses the word Helper. There are other translations that you might uh, might read that that give other uh, descriptors or names for the Holy Spirit. One is advocate, and then some call him the the comforter, the encourager. He's also called a friend. The Greek word for uh, that we're reading here that that's translated Holy Spirit is is Paraclete, and it te- technically means one who comes alongside you to help. One who comes alongside you. To help, um, you got to notice in your text, Jesus is teaching. Uh, his teaching also highlights uh, a very important word. He says, "Another," and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that word there. If there's another Helper, that means there had to have been a first Helper. Who do you think the first Helper is? It's Jesus. The answer to everything in the Bible is Jesus, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is the first helper. If Jesus is the first helper and he's sending another one, this is supposed to be an encouraging thought to us. And it's, it's I mean, the, the thought is Jesus is not going to send us a second rate person to take his place. Imagine you're uh, in the hospital. Uh, you need some surgery. You need open heart surgery, which is probably one of the most uh, serious surgeries that there is, except for probably brain surgery. Um, you've got one of the best um, heart surgeons in the world is going to operate on you. They've put you on the table. They're about to sedate you. The, the doctor comes, leans over the curtain, says, hey, check it out. Uh, I'm cutting out. Uh, but uh, I got a first year medical student that's going to finish the operation for you. And all of a sudden you like, you know, when you should like you go out, it's like you be thinking, what in the world? What in the world have I gotten myself into? Uh, that wouldn't be encouraging at all, would it? That's not what Jesus means when he says, says, I'm sending you another helper. When Jesus sends another helper, he sends one like himself. The Holy Spirit will take Jesus place after his departure and he'll do nothing less than what Jesus has already been doing. The Holy Spirit comes as another Jesus, so to speak, not in his person, but in his works. In, uh, in verse 17, let's read verse 17. Even a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the the spirit of truth, which says that the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the truths that Jesus has already taught. Uh, Later on in verse 26, 
Jesus later says, the helper, the Holy Spirit that the Father sends will teach all things and bring them into your remembrance. Uh, bring into your remembrance all that I've already said to you. I mean, have you thought about this? How is it that the, the, uh, the uh, apostles remember all the stuff that Jesus said and were able to capture it in Scripture? The Holy Spirit helped them. He was the one helping them to remember all the things that, that had transpired in Jesus' life and that they had, they had lived with him so that they were able to write it down. The Holy Spirit comes along to help. Later, Jesus will say, this is for your good that I'll go away. In fact, it's even better. My pastor in North Carolina used to um, uh, really chide us, but, but challenge us with, 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 this, with this question. What would be better? Um, you know, in regards to the Holy Spirit, what would be better? Would you rather have Jesus or would you rather have the Holy Spirit? And, uh, you know, obviously we know what the, the text says, uh, but that's a hard thing to think about. I mean, if as we read the Bible, we sort of we get, sort of get to know Jesus. But in a way, we envy these, these disciples because, I mean, they were up close and personal with the creator himself. I mean, who wouldn't want to have some intimate time with Jesus? Uh but actually, we don't have to think too much about this because Jesus already tells us. He tells us which is better. He says, no, it's not better for me to stay. It would be better for you that the Holy Spirit come and I go away. And here's why. If Jesus stays, they get to rub up and close and personal with, with God the Father. They're intimate with him while he's there. But here's the deal about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just dwell among you. Jesus says he gives us the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. He, he gets inside of us. So we have God living, not just around us, among us. He's in us. And I tell you what, I need some help like that. I need some help inside me to do the very things that God is asking me to do. There's another important reason why Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And we see this as a conditional statement in verse 15. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So on the eve of Jesus leaving the disciples, leaving the earth, going back to the disciples, what he does is he's up in the ante. He's saying, in order for me to leave and you to do all the things that that I need for you to do, I need you to be empowered to do it. And I'm not going to be able to do it for you. I need to give you something to do it. And really what he's doing is he's he's calling them to a different kind of commitment. It's a, a commitment of increased obedience in regards to the way that they actually love him. I call it a commitment kind of love. In fact, he says over and over throughout the, the this passage of text here, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll You'll obey my words. You'll do what I say. We saw what just verse 15 just said. Look at verse 20, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Skip down to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll love my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 24, whoever, whoever does not love me, does, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is, no, is, is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And so Jesus is this is a turning point in this narrative. 
Jesus is, is speaking in a way that he hasn't spoken before. Up to this point, Jesus has basically told the disciples of the love that God has for them. Think about his his speech to Nicodemus in John chapter three, where we hear the, the great Super Bowl verse, the, the great end zone verse. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. God in his grace loves us by sending us Jesus to forgive us of our sins. And of, of course, in chapter 13, God, again, shows his love for us in that Jesus um, takes off his clothes, kneels down and washes the, the disciples feet. But here he's he's teaching them not just about God's love for them. He's he's saying the emphasis is I'm leaving. I'm going back to the father. I know you. I know you've had troubles. I, I know that you don't want me to leave, but this is my purpose. And it's the father's will for me. But it's also the father's will for you. In verse uh, verse 18, he says, I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll not. I'll come to you again. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you'll see me because I live you'll live also. Jesus is saying, this is why you need me to go away and send the Holy Spirit so that you'll love me with a commitment kind of love. I need to go away and send the Holy Spirit so that you have the Holy Spirit inside you, helping you along. Here's the neat thing about the, the God that I love. He, he gives us with the very things that we need to, to serve him with. God doesn't leave us as orphans, which, which simply means he doesn't turn us over to figure out life by ourselves. He gives us something inside of us to, to steer us, to help navigate the way, especially when it when it gets hard. We need Jesus to go away and send the Holy Spirit so that we can do greater works in the spreading of of the gospel of salvation. We need Jesus to go away and send the Holy Spirit so that we can pray more effectual prayers because the Holy Spirit is in us, teaching us how to pray and oftentimes giving us the very words to pray. We need Jesus to go away and send the Holy Spirit so that out of love for him, we would simply be able to obey his commands. We can't obey what God tells us to do without his help. The promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling the disciples brings us about. The last reason that Jesus gives for going to the Father, leaving the disciples, leaving this world and going to the Father, is that he would grant us his peace. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world does do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father For the father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe I will no longer talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Rise, let us go from here. As Jesus is saying these words, his closest friends are, I mean, they're probably freaking out. Um, their, their friend is about to leave. They're, they're literally on the brink of a storm and they have every right to be a little troubled, a lot troubled and to be in, in much fear. Jesus is about to lead them from the, the upper room. They're going to go towards the garden of Gethsemane. We'll see that unfold in verse uh, chapter 16 and 17. And when they get to the garden of Gethsemane, Judas is going to show up with temple guards and they're going to arrest Jesus. Uh, they'll take them to uh, a secure place and they'll try him. 
three times. He'll eventually be nailed to a cross and he's going to die on that cross for the sins of, um, you know, for, for our sins. And, and from this, uh, we should see that being a Christian doesn't keep us from storms. Jesus doesn't hide us from the, the troubles and the trials of life. Actually, uh, if you can handle this, God oftentimes allows storms to mature us in our faith. We've seen that already in John. At the tail end of John chapter 4, Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes. Jesus meets up with them and he quiets the storm and eventually they get safely to ground. Uh, back up to, to Mark's gospel. Mark shows us uh, an incident where Jesus is, uh, the disciples are in the midst of a storm. Jesus is in the boat with them. He's sleeping in the stern, not even aware of the storm. And they like, Jesus, wake up. This storm is going to kill us. And he wakes up, tells them they're people of little faith. And he, he not only quiets the storm, he tells the storm, peace, be still. And so Jesus is able to uh, bring to peace the storms of our life. But here's the neat thing about Jesus as he's leaving to go back to the father. He offers us not just peace in our surroundings. He offers us his peace. Jesus gives us probably one of the I mean, he's a Jesus has no home. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have just like stuff that he could give us that are materialistic, but he gives us probably the best part of of himself. One of his greatest attributes, he offers to give us his peace and God gives us. Jesus gives us peace in two ways. The first way is Jesus gives us peace with God. Theologically, that's justification by faith. Romans chapter three, Romans chapter five. Justification by faith is being made right with God despite all the bad things that you've done in your life. Jesus ended the war between us and God when he goes to the cross and he pays our ransom by the blood of that cross. He delivers us from from God's divine court of justice by his death on the cross. Jesus also allows us to experience not just peace with God, but he allows us to experience peace, the peace of God. This comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends to indwell us. Paul writes this, don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and petition, bring your requests before God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here's the blessing of peace. It comes as a right relationship with God. It comes as an awareness of of God's loving presence in our lives and the receiving of his grace through faith. You know, it was the peace of God, Jesus having made peace with God on the cross for us, that these disciples were told, don't let, I mean, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. May that be said of us as well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the peace of God that comes to those who trust in Jesus. We thank you that for many of us in this room, that you have given us peace with God by dying on the cross for us. And all you require of us really is that we trust. And so I pray that those in this room who have yet to trust in Jesus, to see in him an ample Savior who can save them from all the things that in their life that aren't quite right, that you would come and and do that great thing. Give them peace with God. Justify them. Make them right with the Father as they repent of their sins and 
and ask you to forgive them. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would give us the peace of God. Would you come and quiet our anxious souls? Would you cause the storm to be still? Whatever, um, whatever the trouble might be, financial troubles, personal troubles, relational troubles, work troubles, neighbor troubles, troubles with kids, troubles with spouses. Lord, our, our lives are riddled with trouble, but you said you've come to offer us your peace. Would you give it and would you make room in our hearts to receive it? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.